You're listening to the Bats Left Throws Right podcast with your hosts, Jack Almer, Sal LaDuca, and Peter LaDuca. BLTR is the place where right meets left, brain meets body, and where we square up everything else in between. Come on a journey with us with the stories of athletes, coaches, scouts, and trainers who will inspire and motivate you to unleash your fullest potential. Follow us on Twitter at BLTR Podcast and on Facebook and Instagram at Bats Left Throws Right. Tune in through Spotify, Google Podcasts, or Apple Podcasts, and please be sure to rate, subscribe, and review. Welcome to Bats Left Throws Right. I'm your host, Jack Almer, along with the great father-son duo of Sal and Peter Loduca. Today joining us is lefty batting, righty throwing Jeremy Wolf, former left fielder and first baseman, was picked up by the New York Mets in the 31st round of the 2016 MLB draft, played a couple of years within the Mets system, making stops at Kingsport and Brooklyn. Prior to that, in 2015, he played 40 games for the Newport Gulls and the NECBL. NECBL always has a special place in my heart, going back to my Mystic Schooners broadcasting days. And man, the field down in Newport is really something else. I mean, that while it is a college league field, it feels like the minor league baseball stadium. And that's because you've had legends like Babe Ruth, among others, who have played at that stadium. So just a lot of history and a really cool place to play but though he did not continue to play affiliated baseball past his two years in the Met system he continued to do a lot of other things in the baseball world hopping onto Israel onto the Israel national baseball team he played in the confederation of European baseball's 2019 European baseball championship B pool and then again in the Africa Europe 2020 Olympic qualification tournament which Israel actually had to win in order to get into playing in the 2020 Summer Olympics here in Tokyo, where Alex continues to play and is now a teammate of our other BLTR guest, Alex Katz. Him and Jeremy Wolf will be taking the field together. So again, remember, you're awake at six in the morning on Friday to catch the two of them taking on Team USA out in Tokyo. Jeremy, similar to Alex, is a guy who does things off the field as well and has had a lot of success with that. Peter, talk a little bit about some of the ventures that Jeremy has seen when he's not playing baseball. Well, I think the venture that we talked about in this interview with Jeremy is more than baseball. And I'm, I'm so happy that Jeremy Wolf really advocated and took a initiative to stand up for the minor leaguers and affiliated baseball all across the uh, MLB organizations. As we can see these past couple of years, there's been a trend and there's also been like a, a wave of minor league ballplayers starting to speak out as far as uh, conditions that they're living in or, um, you know, where they're living in in the first place. Some guys are sleeping out of their, their cars. Some guys are sleeping on the floors at the hotel in the lobby or in like gyms before they have a game uh, the next day. So the conditions and and, uh, you know, the hospitality that's being provided to these minor leaguers um, really is not is not right. You know, it's not morally right. And uh, that's the great thing about more than baseball with Jeremy Wolf is that he's advocating and uh, also raising uh, funds and raising money to help these minor league ballplayers that need the assistance. So um, it's really amazing what Jeremy's doing. He's been through it. He's seen it all, and now he's uh, figuring out a way to enhance the experience of minor league baseball. Because minor league baseball, I'm sure we've discussed in other episodes, it's family fun. It's a day where you can go out to the ballpark and have fun with your kids or have fun with your friends and enjoy baseball. And it's also still a staple of American life. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, 
Minor league baseball, I think, is really, you know, when you talk about a casual fan sort of looking at that and, and going to watch a game, they're kind of keeping their eye on the star prospect, the one who got the multi-million dollar signing bonus, maybe an odd Tim Tebow appearance if you're going back to a few years ago. But, you know, keeping eyes on the guys whose names, you know, and who are going to go home and be fine and be able to drive back to a house and a bed to sleep in. But, you know, you, you kind of get lost in the weeds there. The other 20 plus guys who are trying to make a team don't have the comfort of that million dollar plus signing bonus to kind of fall back on. And they are scrapping and fighting to make a name for themselves and continue to climb that ladder. So, you know, there's a lot of those guys, the, the 20 to round 30 guys who might not ever see the show, but are there just like everybody else and ready to fight and play and compete. And it's, you know, those guys that we got to kind of look out, look out for because they are putting on an amazing product on the field. And, you know, like Peter said, we don't want to see these communities that have kind of been built around these minor league baseball teams start to lose, you know, their pride as those teams kind of close up. So a lot of credit to what Jeremy is doing here in trying to keep that minor league baseball experience alive. And that's really what I think everybody wants in this situation. Ultimately, you know, it's really interesting that the conditions that sometimes minor leaguers have to live through, um, especially if they don't get, you know, any big kind of signing bonuses. It really was the pandemic that precipitated, you know, it it opened the door and it's like, you know, it was bad before and then the pandemic came and it became even worse. And so, you know, these guys, they couldn't work uh, because it was no work to be had. People were, you know, in, in lock, every, every place was in lockdown at the time. And so it really, it, in a way it, it brought to the fore, the mental health needs, all of the other issues that minor leaguers go through to help them get by. And also, you know, also there's the other part of that, you know, if you've been in the minor league system for a while, it's also helping them and, and you may, they may not get, to the, the the majors, it's also about helping them to transition, transition, you know, into another career or other areas where, you know, they have some proficiency and they have some skills. Yeah, absolutely. It's like you said, you know, all about kind of making sure that these guys are, are mentally all right. You know, we saw kind of what happened with Drew Robinson and how the pandemic really affected him, a guy who is in that minor league ladder, like you said, and, you know, had a lot of issues with depression. And, you know, it's guys like Jeremy who are kind of taking the initiative to try to make sure that that depression doesn't, you know, consume anybody else's life and doesn't, you know, threaten to take somebody else from, from us because, you know, it's, it's beautiful sport and we want everybody to be supported and mental health certainly, you know, I think has to be brought more to the forefront of all sports really, because, you know, you're, classically trained all these athletes to kind of push all that down, push all the weakness down. You, you gotta be great. That's how you gotta be great. You know, hide, hide any weaknesses, hide any deficiencies, but you know, when it comes to how you're feeling, how you're doing off the field, you know, that's something that you need to talk about. You need to find somebody to, to relate to. And so great to Jeremy to really bring that issue out and, and talk about it. And, you know, we're really excited to get into that more with him here in this interview, as well as his playing career and, you know, what he sees for himself in the future. So without further ado, we bring on Jeremy Wolf. Jeremy. Hi, hey, how you doing? Hey, what's going how on? are you? Good. 
Great to see you. Uh, I'm Jack. We have Sal and Peter, the father-son duo over there. Great to hop on and chat with you. I saw you played in the NECBL for the Newport okay. Gulls. So I was I did some broadcasting for the Mystic Schooners back in 2016. Oh, I, no way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was down in, in the NECBL as well. So just missed each other, but great league. Newport was beautiful as well when I got to go down there. You yeah. played at a stadium with some incredible history. Babe Ruth, Satchel Page, all guys who played there. What was it like being a part of that organization? How would you feel about your time in the NECBL? Oh, we're starting? It's it? It's, we're going? I yeah, we're going. Getting ready. Think we're just going right into questions? It was fucking – it was sick, man. <laughs> NECBL was the best experience playing baseball you could ever have. The competition's so good. The communities embrace these teams – and being in Newport, I, I, had, a, I had a scooter. Uh, I lived uh, 10 minutes from the beach. I had lobster rolls for breakfast every day. Wow. To be a college student, uh, to, be a, to, to, be, to be 21, to play college baseball every day, and to play against that competition, knowing that every night you're playing against a Division I talent with scouts in the stands, with people there, and I was a Division three player, so I just had to, day in and day out, just prove myself that D3 guys can compete at this level. And um, my good friend of mine played in Mystic. He was uh, – Teddy Turner was there my year, 2015. Mystic in Newport. I liked playing up in Vermont. Kate, uh, the team near the Cape – I don't know. Brent Rooker was on that team, though. Like, hey, there was a lot of really good talent. And uh, playing in the NECBO really – prepared me for professional baseball and just made me an all-around better baseball player. Jeremy, I have to warn you because, uh, well, first of all, Jack is from Boston. So anybody we interview, it's like he needs to find a connection to Boston. Otherwise, he doesn't connect with you. So, <laughs> yeah. so he was like, I didn't even realize that. And he's like, oh, you know, he was in the Cape Cod League, blah, blah, blah. So Jack, just give Jeremy, a quick little rundown on your connection to the Cape Cod League, because this is very interesting, Jeremy. You'll appreciate it. Yeah, so my grandfather actually founded a team down in Cape Cod in the uh, CCBL down there. So I'm a big su summer college baseball fan. Oh, that's cool. What's the team? It was the Hyannis Mets originally, now the Hyannis Harbor Hawks. Yeah, I was uh, not invited to play in the Cape, but uh, the Cape is the Cape, dude. Like, running a summer baseball league team, oh, my God. Like, Chuck Pavo, who runs the Newport Goals, has literally the best job in the world. Oh, absolutely. He absolutely. owns a college baseball team. You know, the fans are there every night. It's an awesome environment. The, the city's embraced it. It's, that's a dream. Um, owning a minor league team would be cool. Owning a college summer team, that's cool. No, absolutely. And you had, a, you had a dream situation in Newport. I mean, that's just a beautiful, especially in the summer town, to be in. I mean, scootering to the beach every day and playing baseball in the afternoon. Like, that's perfect. Uh, yeah, yeah. It was great. It, especially, like, we had come off that year. I had come off being in the World Series, the College World Series. It was my junior year. So I oh, just wow. played in the College World Series. I was still fresh from playing. I, I jumped in and you know, baseball at that level is like really tough, but I think, uh, I, I don't know. I, I think I did okay, but I, I just, I had so much fun. You know, it, it was really wonderful. And I met so many cool people and, and I'm still friends with the majority of that team today. So college baseball is, uh, is one hell of an experience for sure. 
since you're talking about college baseball, um, I wanted to bring up, and you mentioned it before, you know, you're a proud D3 baseball guy, you know, and uh, so am I. I actually went to Gallaudet University in Washington, D.C., so it's the only university for the deaf and hard of hearing, so I'm, I'm hard of hearing. I have a cochlear implant, so, um, you know, I play D3 baseball there, so um, I am familiar with Trinity College, and you guys did win the World Series, uh, I believe it was in 2016. Yeah. Yeah. So what was that experience like being at a D3 college and winning the College World Series? What was the overall experience of going to a D3 baseball school, you know, but still then being able to realize your dream afterwards yeah. getting drafted by the Mets? What was that whole experience um, like and that process like? Yeah, I uh, so I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, and it's a hub for baseball. We've all spring training out here. So right. Uh, I was good, you know, I was good in high school, but I didn't get any looks. I, um, I think Utah offered me a walk-on spot and that was it. And going through playoffs, my senior year, Trinity saw me in a showcase in like October of my senior year. And, and about four months later they called and they're like, Hey, do you want to come to Trinity? And I was like, what is Trinity? And they're like, it's division three baseball. (laughs) Uh, we're going to be really good and we're going to win a national championship, uh, your senior year. (laughs) Wow. I was like, uh, okay, I'll come check it out. Sure. My best, one of my best friends was called that same day an outfielder on, on my high school team was called. And then two of our friends from arrival high school were called the next week. Uh, we all went out for a visit separately. I think Austin was on a Saturday. Connor was on a Sunday. I was like Sunday evening come and check it out and fly home. And um, I loved it. I loved the coaches, Tim Scannell and Zach Fergosi. I loved it. I loved that it was a small community. I loved that Division Three baseball is a small school. I didn't love that there's no athletic scholarship. And I'm still thinking about that decision today. But I, I love that there was no merit, right? It was earn your spot and do what you can because if you play summer baseball and you do well in D3, someone will find you to play professionally. Wow. And they always, they, they pushed us in that way. My, when I was a senior in high school, they had a senior at Trinity who was drafted in like the 20th round. His name was Ben Klamesh. And he got drafted to the Reds. And if he could get drafted, I could get drafted. Right. Wow. And so I knew where was the place, like what I always tell high school kids, is go where they want you and go where you can play. Don't go to Arizona State and sit on the bench because you might get an opportunity your junior year because they'll just somebody find somebody better and find somebody younger and find somebody with you know who will play you know last of a Scott whatever. So Division Three baseball is guys who live and die baseball who just want to play and love playing and they're not afraid to. There's no scholarship. You're not going to lose your scholarship. Right. right. So these guys aren't afraid. So I went to Trinity and it was just such a baseball focused experience. It was four years of baseball. There was school involved and we had fun and we did the things that we needed to do as college baseball players. But like every single day for four years, it was about preparing us to win a world series. That's what Scandal preached us. That's every, all of our focus. There was never like, even if we weren't good, we were really good my freshman year. Uh, and I came in, I played, I played every game, my entire college career, except for four because I forgot the signs and I was taken out. <laughs> and uh, so four year, every day for four years, we're focusing on winning a national championship. It wasn't going to happen freshman year. We got screwed on a call, and that's a legit thing. I'm not going to argue about that, but we got screwed on a call in the, in the regionals. 
Uh, sophomore year, we just weren't as good. Junior year, we got to the World Series uh, with an all-junior starting lineup and all-junior except for one or two starting pitchers. And then senior year, we were an all-senior starting lineup and all-senior starting pitchers. So the entire – we had so much experience at such a high level in college baseball. We were always – ranked in the top five. We were really good and we were so confident about winning a World Series that we just went out there and did it. And when we actually won, nobody was surprised. You played D3 baseball. Go look at our stats as a team. We are arguably one of the greatest Division three teams ever because we just had this sole focus on being a good team that is going to win the World Series. Jeremy, that raises an interesting question, though. Do you think... The MLB organization, the scouts, do you think that they're missing some really good prospects on a D3 level because they're more focused on D1, D2, or some JUCO? Do you think that the level of, I I, I don't want to say talent, but I'm saying the level of energy and work ethic that a D3 player might put in might be higher than a D2 or a D1? Or is, is my analysis misplaced? In terms of like who makes it to professional baseball, very few guys fall, fall through the cracks. Very few guys that you go, well, you know, he was really good and had the opportunity to know, like if you're good enough at, in college, there's going to be a pro scout that's going to give you an opportunity. And it if doesn't matter where you're potential, what level of whether yeah. you're 1D2 or D3. Well, yeah, the amount of eyeballs you get is going to be dictated on the level you play at. But like all in all, from the amount of guys that I saw in D3 and those guys that went on to play professionally or a very, you know, I think a, when there were 40 rounds, now there are 20 rounds unless D3 guys are ever going to make it. But uh, now that there are, when there were 40 rounds, I was a 31st round pick. I think I was one of 20 D3 guys to get drafted. Were there more guys that could have played in professional baseball? Yes. The level of talent in Division Three, at top-end Division Three, equates to D2 and equates to a lot of D1. A lot of D1 is garbage baseball. A lot of Juco ball is really good and better than D1. Uh, a lot of D2 ball is really good and better than garbage D1. And a lot of D3 ball is really good. So across the board... There are really good baseball players at all three levels. Unfortunately, a top D3 guy is going to be placed in a category below a low D1 guy. Right. Oh, okay. Unfortunately. There are good baseball players everywhere, but all you have to do is, in Division Three, especially, you have to put up numbers because no one's going to look at you if you're hitting 310 with five home runs in Division Three, but you hit 410. Okay, now they're going to look at you and then they're going to go watch you and they're going to ask questions and they're going to see what you can do. Or you throw 92 in Division Three. you know, even if your ERA is really low, even if you get a lot of strikeouts, one of the best pitchers I ever saw threw 88 from the left side and his ERA career ERA was like 1.2. And he didn't get a a sniff at professional baseball. Wow. Because he throws 88. Because baseball's going in a different way. So I was a left-handed power hitter. Power is arbitrary. You can look at my numbers. But I was a left-handed hitter, right? If I was a right-handed hitter, my career would have been completely different, even if I put up the same numbers. So that takes us now. We're going to go back. We're going to go back to when you were a kid. And the topic of this podcast of your bats left and throws right 
And so I want to start out from number one, growing up, what was your dominant side? And how did you end up being a lefty hitter and a righty thrower? Because there's two categories that we've we've noticed. And my son fits one of those. My son's a lefty hitter, righty thrower as well. So growing up, sometimes you're either like, well, nobody said, nobody dictated or asked me to do anything. I just, I, 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 I felt more comfortable batting left and I felt more comfortable throwing right. Or maybe instances such as Ichiro Suzuki, right? He's born dominant right. As a kid, he's very fast. So the father figures, let me teach this kid to hit left because he'll be that close at a first base. And he becomes a lefty hitter, righty thrower. Now, I just want to make another comment about that because it'll, it'll take us a little further as we go into this in a little bit more detail. But the fact that you begin to work your non-dominant side is a neurological process because you're opening up the other side of your brain that you wouldn't normally be used to. And so the, the theory is, is that when you're opening up your brain and fostering neuroplasticity, it can connect better to your motor muscular system and the learning system. So let's go back to how you became a lefty hitter, righty thrower. Has anyone ever asked you that question? Uh, no, because no one cares except for you guys. I care. We care. <laughs> uh, okay, okay. I was three years old, and for some reason, there was like a set of plastic left-handed golf clubs that my parents had bought me, and it was completely on accident. And uh, I started playing golf at like three years old with left-handed <laughs> clubs. So I immediately became a lefty in that way. And righty, it's, my parents are right-handed. A majority of people who are left-handed have left-handed parents, like my girlfriend and, and her family. And uh, they're all left-handed. It's crazy. But for what, you know, I was like, is it nature versus nurture? Uh, it being, no, but it's both here now because yeah. it was an ass. So did they purchase? So where do you, what do you think is your dominant side? I do everything right-handed. Okay. I write, I throw, I brush my teeth. I, but I, but I pick my nose and I drive left-handed. <laughs> I cannot pick my nose right-handed and I cannot drive right-handed. When your parents bought the golf clubs, yep. did they just purchase them and made the mistake? But cause if they knew, if, if they knew that they were buying left-handed uh, uh, golf clubs for a left-handed guy, they would have said, no, he's right-handed, so get the right. So was that a mistake? No, I, th I don't know if my father did it on purpose. Uh, he's a sports guy. I mean, when I had the clubs, he was working at ESPN at the time. So it's not like he didn't know anything about sports or anything about the value of being left-handed. He just right. bought left-handed clubs, and I started hitting left-handed, and they never switched me. And I always tell parents now, like, your kid should be a left-handed hitter and a right-handed thrower because left-handed hitters are very valuable. And uh, you, if you're right-handed, you can play infield. So you can just play more positions. Right. right. So you're giving – so as you can see, I don't know if you listened to the, you know, Jack Howell's uh, interview, but Jack was born dominant right-handed. Yeah. His, his, when he growing up, his stepbrother, his step 
who taught him how to play baseball was left-handed. So he teaches Jack how to, how to swing left-handed. And then when his mom saw the first, him playing his first little league game and saw him swinging left, she got pissed off. She's like, what the hell did you teach him to hit left if he's right-handed? So, and there's multiple cases out there and I'm not going to go into it now, but I think what happens is, is the effect begin it's a neurological process and you see that in a it manifests itself biomechanically because you become more proficient and more i mean so growing up as a lefty hitter and a righty thrower did you feel you had good accuracy in hitting the ball and throwing the ball yeah very much so my my mom always tells me a story of like I was in the playpen at like three or four, whatever, and even at five or six or ten, I could always hit a target with a ball. I still can't. I'm incredible. Like I'm very accurate. I don't throw hard, but you're like your accuracy. I'm, I'm I'm very accurate with throwing a baseball, and I don't know like because if one eye is more dominant than the other, I don't know that thing. But I was always a very consistent hitter, and I was always a very con- like always played outfield and I would always hit the cutoff man. And if I, if there was an opportunity to throw it to a base, I always one hopped it perfectly to a base. I'm very consistent with that. Did you experiment with batting right at any point in time when you were little? Uh, in wiffle ball, I had a wiffle ball, like a little bit of grass in my backyard. So we would play wiffle ball and uh, the roof, the top roof was a home run and the bottom roof was a ground rule double. And there was this, like this huge tree and this, this branch, right? And if you, like with all these leaves, like you have to hit it in the perfect spot to hit a home run. If you miss it, it's a ground ball, it hits the wall and whatever. Right. But if you hit it too high, it's going to go in the tree and it's going to be an out because someone's going to catch it, right? And so I was just such a more, like six and seven and eight, I was always left-handed. When I was like 10 or 11, I was like, maybe I just try right-handed. I couldn't, I have no concept of hitting right-handed. I cannot do it. I cannot swing right-handed. It is so awkward. It feels horrible. It doesn't make sense to me. If, if I were to swing a baseball bat left-handed, you'd be like, oh, it's a nice lefty swing. Lefty swings always look better. Even though if you uh-huh. flip them around, they're actually identical to other swings. But I can't, like, you'll look at my right-handed swing and go, is that, kid, is that guy okay? Like, <laughs> ever picked up a baseball bat before? Is he... I golf left-handed. I I do hockey. Do, I don't, don't hockey but I, I do hockey left-handed. So I, I I don't get it. I don't get why I can't do anything right-handed. I can't. I cannot swing a golf club right-handed. It's the oddest thing. But you write your name with the right hand. Right. Fully dominant with my right hand. Right. All right. Well, the bottom, the bottom line is that, you know, thank God, and maybe you were meant to be a righty-lefty because, like you said, the numbers that you put up at Trinity at a D3 level, if you were righty-righty, maybe you wouldn't have had, like you said, the, the career or, or the path. Right, exactly. So it all worked out in the end, for sure. So it worked out. It was, let's, uh, yeah. Let's touch a little bit on the eye dominance. Now, as a lefty hitter, who did you bat better off of, righty pitchers or left-handed pitchers? No lefty hits better off of lefty pitchers. No, that's not true. None. Find me one. Who? Ichiro Suzuki, career split stats. 
He hits off of lefties better than he does right-handed. There's a there's a there's a number of them, and okay. I think your your one example is the greatest hitter of all time. Ten million. <laughs> Babe Ruth. I, I'll go look at that up. I'll look it up later. And I'll, ten million. I, hold on. So yeah. I want to know because when when you're a lefty hitter, yeah, you know they're saying that you're facing that right-handed pitcher which is more optimal. So I know from Jack, Jack said as a lefty hitter, righty throw, he's like, Sal, I couldn't hit off of a, of a lefty pitcher for my life. And then I said, well, Jack, what's your dominant eye? And he's like, my left eye is my dominant eye. So he was thinking, well, maybe I should have been a switch hitter because if he was right eye dominant, he'd be able to see that left you know, the, the left, the, the, the arm of the lefty coming around. So I'm just interested to know what your dominant eye is, if you know. Are, are you a neuroscientist? Is this how? No, but this, this is part of how we're actually developing. And I, I don't mean to be, you know, technically, it's just that there are a lot of areas of neuroscience that baseball yeah. is not... They're looking at the product, the biomechanical, the biomechanical effect, which is sometimes it's a neurological effect, and they're skipping that whole part because they're not understanding. I don't know. Just I'm just curious if you. <laughs> yeah, 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 no, no, no. It makes sense. I've never thought about being left-handed in this in this way, uh, except for so I obviously hit better off of righties than lefties, but. My favorite pitch to hit uh, is like a hanging slider from like a lefty because there's something about that angle. It's like lefties that throw over the top. I won't even attempt it. Okay. I'm, I'm out. I I give up because a lefty here balls coming down here and it's an, it's at an angle that I can't catch. Well, Uh, it's at an angle that I just can't for some, it always feels like it rises to me or it always feels like uh, I'm like stepping out. But if that lefty's throwing here, and, but it doesn't, he's not like throwing it behind me, but if he's throwing it at this point, I can pick it up really easy because I know it's going to come either in, in for me, and I would always look in on a lefty because I always know that he's going to try uh, to come in on me with like a, a little bit of run. But then there's going to be a point where he's going to try to throw like that back, you know, not a Randy Johnson like sweeping slider, but like, try to float one either in or float one, you know, starting middle ending out. And if he start, if he tried to start middle and actually started in, that's a hanging slider that I will crush. So a hanging slider off a lefty is a wonderful pitch to hit because it pops out and you know, it's exactly going to come here because the fastball is always at the same angle. A righty, a righty comes down. It can come down at any angle and there's so much room. I know exactly where it's going to come in. But the pitch that gives me the most trouble always is like a fastball up. And for a lot of hitters, too. I'm not the only one. But I can pick up slider, curveball, changeups. No, I'll swing over every changeup. I don't know why that's a, like, it feels like a lefty thing. But with a, with a hanging slider on, on both sides, I, I see that like pop out very quickly. Let's talk about your professional life in the minor leagues sure. and the things that came out of that because I'd like to get into your. Uh, you have an organization called More Than Baseball and Mind Ready. We'd, we'd really love to get into that aspect as well as 
the Israeli team and uh, the qualifying uh, that you guys are qualified now for the, you know, uh, for the Olympics. So maybe you want to get into the your professional life yeah. in the leagues. Uh, my journey in baseball. So I, I played college baseball. I got drafted uh, to my favorite team. I was a diehard Mets fan growing up. Uh, if I can find it, hold on. Nice. We're Long Island people, so we are Mets fans too. You're Mets fans. Oh my yes, God. we're from Long Island. So, so I sleep with this every night. It's my New York Mets Snuggie. I've had it since I was maybe 12 years old. Wow. Uh, That's very cool. If you want to be the coolest guy on, on the minor league team, bring your team Snuggie on road <laughs> trips. Okay. You'll be the, the, all the cool guys bring their own team Snuggie uh, with them. So I, I got to play for the Mets. It was a, a wonderful experience. It, it's opened my life up to so many opportunities. The, the, the pay for minor leaguers is very low. The lifestyle for minor leaguers is very difficult. Playing baseball is hard enough as it is. And it was just, it was hard to compete at the highest of my ability when the environment itself was not supporting my development. And so I got injured at the end of my 2017 season uh, with Brooklyn. And then I got released before I could walk yet uh, after back surgery. And so I was like, I had a college degree. I was one of the very few in minor league baseball who did. But for me, I knew that my passion lied in how do I help my friends and how do I help the next generation of minor leaguers just have an environment that supports them during their career and after their career? Why is a minor league baseball player paying full price for housing, food, equipment, gloves, batting gloves? Why is he uh, struggling to make ends meet? Why is he having a hard time accessing independent mental health coaching? How come he gets out of professional baseball and he sees his time in professional baseball as a detriment when we can make sure that he's doing things while he's playing that'll set him up for success when he's done. So more than baseball is a response to how hard it is to play minor league baseball, but we do it in a, in a fashion that uh, enables people to see the good in baseball and the good that baseball brings to communities, minor league communities, to youth communities who love baseball, to international communities who want the game. I don't know what it is about baseball, and hopefully I'll never know because I love the mystery, but like there's a community in Cameroon where we're trying to raise, you know, raise money to distribute equipment, but bring enough equipment in that we can send to him. And w- why is he not doing this with basketball? I, I don't hear a lot of stories about this. with ba- There are, but I don't hear a lot of stories of basketball. I don't hear a lot of stories about building le- football leagues in these communities. But I hear a lot of stories about baseball. There's something about baseball that brings people together and it, and it shows this new side of community. And, and baseball has this incredible power with people. And so it's, baseball has given me these amazing opportunities to, that I wouldn't have had otherwise. All of my friends come from playing baseball. All of my experiences, my life has developed in the way it has because of playing baseball. And so along with helping minor leaguers get housing and food uh, and mattresses so they can sleep, you know, and helping them play better. We're just a tool for their development, but we're also doing things that help communities get baseball. And I think that's just, it's a really important component because we're showing minor league baseball players are valuable. They're valuable to teams. If they weren't, they wouldn't be there. So there's already intrinsic value in having them there. And then on the other side, it's how can we show that what they're doing is important and what they're doing is valuable? And I have these conversations all the time, you know, shut up and dribble, you know, shut up and play, you know, I would do it for free. 
first of all, no, you wouldn't. And secondly, you would want an environment that allows you to develop and will support you while you're playing and will set you up for success when you're done. You know, and, and it's a shame that we are, we sometimes live in a, in a society that doesn't appreciate the hard work that people put into something. If it's something that you deem as uh, recreation, right? You know, these guys are really good athletes. They're devoting their entire lives. They're trying to accomplish this goal. And there's a community of people out there who just want them to succeed. And so if this player does, that's great. He's going to give back to the community that enabled him to get there. But if he doesn't, he's going to be okay with the fact that he didn't get there because he's set up for success when he's done playing. So what it does is makes baseball a more welcoming and better place. And that is our goal. That's where we've been really successful uh, is how we talk about baseball. We talk about baseball in the right way. We don't say screw Major League Baseball. We want to work with Major League Baseball, and we do. But we don't say screw the PA, the Players Association, uh, because we want to work with them, and we do. And we talk about baseball in the right way, so people want to work with us. And uh, I think it's just it's an environment that just needed somebody to just be there and talk about it in this way so that people can come in and support either fans and former players, current players, brands from podcasts, like like to hear my story and the story of more than baseball. And it, you'd be surprised that like, you know, it's not just me. It's Slade Heathcott, a former New York Yankee first round pick. It's Simon Rosenblum Larson, who's a 19th round junior draft pick out of Harvard, uh, current minor leaguer with the Rays, but it's 40, 50, 60 people that we have in this tight knit community that are doing what they can uh, on the ground and online and to help raise money and do things for baseball. And I'm unbelievably grateful for that opportunity to be the catalyst for that. Jeremy, do you think that there should be, do you think that it would be wise if the, if major league baseball came out tomorrow and said, you know what guys, we're only going to draft guys that come out of, and finish their four-year degree or a two-year degree. We're not going to take you out of high school. So if, they, if the MLB came out, would you prefer something like that? Or do you think we just leave it as it is because you may have a superstar coming out of high school, you know, or JUCO, and why deny them the best of their young life? And, and I don't know, where, where do you see that? Well, I wouldn't want MLB to mandate anything, right? The NBA did itself a disservice by saying guys should go to college because it devalues college basketball. To make minor league baseball successful, players need to be put in a position where they can uh, have an opportunity to develop. And so I think, not the league, but I think each team has done its minor leaguers a disservice because there is always more that a an organization can do to support the day-to-day lives of players. And research shows, European soccer model has shown that with focused access to these tools, to vital tools that are going to enable them to play better, athletes will play better. Athletes will develop better and athletes will recover better. So the fact that minor league baseball players are on on the hook for their own housing, right? And that there's no stipend from teams or that there's no stipend from you know, they have to buy their own mattresses because all of that extra curricular stuff adds pressure and adds stress uh, that takes away from the development of the players. And so I I know so many teams are, are doing better at it. 
the uh, Dodgers do a phenomenal job. The Brewers are doing a better job with feeding their players. Uh, the Rays do a fantastic job with the development of their players. They, the Astros value their players incredibly high. These conversations don't have to surround around paying them more because at a certain, at the end of the day, sure, thirty thousand dollars a year, a player to have the opportunity to just focus on his his performance, and he will play better because that's not going to happen, and because that's not what we fight for. We fight for the immediate. What is the immediate? Well, kids on the uh, you know minor leaguers on the on the Mariners, you know, there are some guys who won't be able to afford a mattress. Okay, so what can I do to help get this guy a mattress that he can afford so that he can sleep better? And if he sleeps better, he's going to recover better. If he recovers better, he's going to play better. So I'm not like asking the Mariners to get him a mattress. I'm working with that player to find him something that works for him. And so we want to develop this, you know, more than baseball even more so that the Mariners go, I really, we really like what more than baseball is doing. Come in and help us. You're focused on the development of players. Come in and help us develop players. There's discounts that you have that we don't have. There's ideas that you have that we don't have. There's a network of uh, researchers and professionals who are focused on the development of athletes that we just don't have. There's nine people on the player development staff, and we want to work with more than baseball because they're devoted to helping players in this way. That is where minor league baseball has stayed for such a long time, and more than baseball is focused on ways to take it into the next generation, right? We're, we're trying to make sure that we do all of these things to help players get to the big leagues. And if they don't, that's okay. They're set up for success when they're done. And if they do, that's great. They can extend a championship window. They can be traded away for pieces. They, it can be valuable to a major league club. It makes sense to help minor leaguers. You know, obviously COVID canceling the minor league season last year and severely impacting it this year with a whole bunch of teams not bringing back certain affiliates how has the pandemic sort of made the work that you guys are doing even that much more important and more immediate for these guys? Before the pandemic, in March of last year, we had about 150 players in the organization. Well, about 250. 250 players in the organization, about 100 or so ambassadors. Guys who get just more focused, they get the opportunities to all the things we provide sooner, but they have to spread the word a little bit more. Uh, COVID hits, players are sent home, they were told that they're not going to get paid. They start signing up for what we do. Adam Wainwright donates $250,000 so we can distribute that to Cardinals minor leaguers. Daniel Murphy sees that and goes, I want to help minor leaguers and donates to a league-wide grant program. Now, we weren't developed to just bring money in and distribute it to guys who are really poor. We were built to develop this ecosystem of support. But when a big leaguer goes, I'm going to give you X amount of dollars, uh, let's build this grant program so that we can support minor leaguers. Uh, we're going to do that. And so last year we raised uh, $1.4 million from brands and minor leaguers or major leaguers, former major leaguers. Uh, and then the players trust, the MLB players trust, you know, pledged uh, $500,000 to supporting minor leaguers through the grant program. And so over the last year, we were able to distribute, oh God, I don't know the exact number, you know, about 80 to 85 percent of the money that we raised through this for the program and then uh we were then you know able to support about 1200 players in 14 countries and 1200 of you know i think it's around it's around 800 1200 applied uh, on a high priority medium priority low priority and no priority sort of thing we went we we asked them to fill out this questionnaire and we were able to distribute money based on the guys that needed it the most 
So what COVID did was, yes, it, it got rid of an entire 2020 minor league season. Some was a make or break year for guys. Some, a lot of guys got released. It really reinforced the cuts in minor league baseball that were going to happen anyway. But it really, you know, took that on the fast track. MILB went under MLB's umbrella. Teams were folded. Things happened last year that made this kind of, made more than baseball a vital part of this ecosystem. We always say like, nothing happens in minor league baseball without us knowing about it. And I've really tried to stress that, you know, when a minor league player needs help or he's stuck in Venezuela or he's in Colombia and his entire city flooded, that there's an organization that he can reach out to or that people in his community can reach out to that is going to support him. And we could do so many different projects with minor leaguers, things that they're passionate about. And we can do camps and clinics and we can help, you know, bring people together to support minor leaguers and we can pay minor leaguers for their time. We can help make them a third or half of what they would have made during the season. And so what we're doing is incredibly important to the ecosystem of baseball because it's finally something to support players on a level that they haven't before. So 2020 was incredibly important to build our legitimacy. 2021 is where we're going to prove that we're here to stay. In 2022, we're trying to have Major League Baseball like officially bring us in. And that's like our goal. Wow. Excellent. Jeremy, can you just take us a little bit, um, if you can, on the time remaining on, on your role with the uh, Israeli team, national team, and the Olympics? Yeah. My father's Jewish. Uh, my mother's Italian. So being of Jewish blood or heritage, I, uh, you're able to become a citizen of Israel. And I was, it was about, this was 2018. I think it was the end of 2018. I called Peter Kurz, who runs the Olympic team for Israel. And I said, hey, I run this organization. We'd love to do a camp and bring people to Israel because baseball is cool and we want it to be in Israel. He goes, we actually have an Olympic team. Do you want to play on it? And I was like, yes, oh, yeah. I do. So he's like, cool, come to Israel. Uh, we're going to pay for your flight. We're going to give you a passport. You got to take a few pictures and sign some papers. And then you're going to be on the Olympic team and you're going to help us get to the Olympics. So about a year later, we are getting ready for, uh, I'm living in Texas at the time. And, uh, you know, we're, we're getting ready to go to the Olympics and, you know, we play tournament number one and we won, we beat Russia and it was great. And then we played tournament number two, we beat Lithuania and it was phenomenal. Tournament number three, we're in Germany. And I was like, screw it. I'm moving to Israel. Okay. <laughs> and so we win the tournament. Well, we came in fourth place in the tournament in Germany, but it qualified us for the Olympic trials in Italy. We had to win four or five games and we won and we qualified for the Olympics and everyone on our team is of Jewish heritage who became a Jewish citizen. Four were natural born Israelis and, and served in the army, but everyone else, you know, is Jewish. And so everyone flew back to the States and I got a one-way ticket from, uh, you know, Italy to Israel and I stayed. Wow. It was the best six months of my life. And I learned so much and I learned Hebrew and I, uh, got to, I got to see what I was representing. I got to see what I was representing in the Olympics. I lived in Tel Aviv. I lived in like a bustling downtown area. It was exactly what I needed at that point in my life. Like Tel Aviv, the food was great. There's so much to do. I went with one of my best friends. We lived there together. Like Tel Aviv is like Miami with like a bunch of hummus. It's like the best place in the world. <laughs> and, uh, and I, I came back in March to get ready for an independent baseball season. 
uh, COVID hits, Olympics get pushed off. I st- I'm still, you know, in Phoenix. I'm still training. I'm still ready, getting ready. And then we go to the Olympics in uh, July, late July and August. Yeah. Uh, and it's going to be a, a phenomenal experience. And the team is just a really tight-knit group of people. We just got Ian Kinsler. Uh, we have Danny Valencia, mm-hmm. uh, Ty Kelly, uh, Jeremy Bleich. Like, there's a handful of big leaguers. And then... Uh, just a lot of guys who grinded in the minor leagues, some guys who haven't played professional baseball yet, four guys who were Israeli-born soldiers, three played in college in the United States. One guy is a 44-year-old dude named Shlomo Lippitz, and uh, he throws like submarine. Uh, it's, just, it's just one hell of a team, and our, our coach and Eric Holtz is just one hell of a guy and a leader. And uh, we're just, we just have so much fun being together that we just can't wait to get on the field together again and hopefully win a medal. So awesome. I need to get a Shlomo Olympic jersey. That guy sounds okay. incredible. So I uh, will send a link to you guys. I, I don't have it with me. I gave it to my sister for her birthday. But there's a picture of, of Shlomo Lippitz's head on a very large, hairy man. He's holding like nine cats. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> And I don't have the photo in front of me, and I will send you the link to grab your own Shlomo Lippitz shirt uh, oh, while supplies no. last. Uh, but I got I to gotta finish that up. But it's, yeah, uh, we, it's, we need your address, too. We're, we're going to send you our Bats Left, Rose Right um, shirts. Nice. We'll do a little jersey exchange. Yeah. I have it right here, man. <laughs> oh, I love that. I love that. Good luck in the Olympics, man, with the – few minutes we have left with you. We're going to give it over to Peter to just hit you with some rapid-fire questions to bring us home. Please do. I'm all ears. Yeah, so, uh, listen, favorite team growing up we learned was the Mets. Mets. Who's your favorite ball player growing up David or Wright. idol that you looked up to? Who? David Wright. David Wright. David oh. Wright was my Derek Jeter. I got to meet him. I got to – okay, so, quick story. I'm in the outfield. It's me in left field. Tim Tebow's in right field. Okay. <laughs> Syndergaard's on the mound. No, uh, Syndergaard's on the mound. Uh, Travis Darno's catching. It was like some scrimmage we did on the, on the major league field. And I go in the locker room to be like, where the fuck am I? Why am I? Like, what am I doing here right now? <laughs> uh, David Wright comes out of the thing. And I go, oh my God, Mr. Wright. Uh, I, you're my favorite player. And my uncle used to work for uh, the World Baseball Classic. And you gave him wristbands. And I was number five. And, and he goes, calm down. I remember... You know, I hope you're doing well. Tell your uncle I say hi. And I was like, okay, I have to go on the field now. Uh, and I'm sitting next to Tim Tebow, and, uh, who, you know, took my spot, whatever. And uh, I go, you know, if you were to tell me when I was uh, 12 years old wearing a Tim Tebow jersey and a Mets hat, I'd be wearing a Mets hat sitting next to Tim Tebow jersey, or Tim Tebow wearing his Tim Tebow jersey. would be like, no way. The house of a Mets, you know, I would have said, you're fucking crazy. And wow. so... People, you know, minor leaguers who go, you know, I didn't get to the big leagues. I didn't reach my goal. I didn't fulfill my dream. Yes, you did. And uh, I'm living proof that, you know, if, if you work hard and you keep your mouth shut and you, if you have the courage enough to speak it, you can do it. And I, and I did it. And I'm grateful for the opportunities I had. And I'm just trying to make sure other people have that opportunity like I had. Favorite city that you travel to or favorite city that you played in? I played a not an official game in Tel Aviv, but we have played. Tel Aviv is the greatest city in the world. But uh, I got to play baseball in Brooklyn, New York, as a New York Mets fan whose grandfather grew up a Brooklyn Dodger fan who had season tickets and watched Jackie Robinson play in Brooklyn 
Oh my God. I got to be a Brooklyn Cyclone. And my grandpa was actually there when I got hurt, which was, you know, serendipitous. But to play baseball in New York City and just be booed mercilessly by New Yorkers is uh, an absolute dream, like literally a dream come true. On my bucket list, it was be booed by New Yorkers. Oh my God. <laughs> I crossed that off at 23 years old. Oh my God. That's funny. Yeah. Uh, favorite baseball movie or baseball classic movie? Little Big League. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a good one. It's uh, uh, my, uncle, my uncle paints houses. Just to get uh, into your you know, uh, food personality or food traits, uh, we're going to get some yes or no questions on food. So raisins and apple pies, yes or no? Raisins in apple pies? Yes or no? No. Raisins uh, are gross. <laughs> ketchup, ketchup or on steak? Yes or no? Sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes the steak needs ketchup. Yes. Uh, pineapples on pizza? Yes. Hell, no. hell no! Thank God. And Thank hot dogs God. are not a sandwich. Next question. <laughs> you just finished it. You just finished it, my man. Was that, it? Was that the yeah. last one? <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> okay, good. I could see where that was going. There What's you go. Tim like? What's Tim Tebow like? He's the nicest guy in the world. Oh, that's awesome. He's exactly, he's exactly who you think he'd be. He's fair. He's genuine. He's nice. He has his point of view, but he respects the fact that most people will either combat him or... Uh, you know, might not uh, appreciate, you know, how vocal he is about, you know, the things he believes in, but I respect the hell out of the guy. I saw him work in person. I saw how cut up and bloody his hands were by how hard he wanted it. And I knew that he was there for, uh, it was a hundred percent legit. When he signed to play for the Mets, he goes, I asked, I go, why are you here? And he's like, if you had the opportunity to play professional baseball, wouldn't, wouldn't you? And I go, well, yeah, I'm here right now. And he goes, same. It's wow. 100% legit. Yeah. You know, when someone is genuine, they're comfortable in their skin, they know exactly the re- what they're doing and the reason why, it's like, yeah. and, and respectful of everybody else's decisions to live their life without passing a judgment. Is, is that not like the, that's an, that's an amazing human, right? He, he lives life by his convictions, not about, not from his his belief. And we, we talked about, there were, there were times where I was being made fun of because I was Jewish on the team. There were just bigoted people who play everywhere. There's bigoted people everywhere. And uh, Tim was like, he's entitled to believe whatever he wants. He's not to be whoever he is. And I was like, thank you, Tim. Like, do you ever struggle with like your faith? He's like every day. Right. Like, I'm not just this crazy brainwashed person. He goes, I fully, uh, I am fully convinced that you know, of, of, you know, this, that, and whatever, but I have the courage enough to, you know, combat some of the things that I, I see and what I believe. And I have the courage enough to speak openly about these things. And, uh, I, I couldn't be more proud. I only knew him for a month in spring training. I got his number. He doesn't call me back, but <laughs> very fortunate for the opportunities that I had to, to meet him. He, he certainly, you know, it changed my life or showed me, you know, kind of how to act, be a man and, and act properly and on and off the field. And Lucas Duda, same thing. Like he talks to every minor leaguer and he has these, he has these, they'll all have these experiences that only they have. Me and Lucas Duda talked for about 30 minutes one time inside of a, uh, uh, it was the only conversation I've had with him, but we talked in, in the training room and uh, he just, there's so much insight that 
for him, he doesn't remember the conversation, but for me, I'll, I'll take it with me for the rest of my life. Zach Wheeler, I got drafted three days earlier. <laughs> I missed my flight. Uh, so I had to change my flight to get to spring training, but, uh, or to get to my team. But I'm walking in the clubhouse and I put my stuff in and I see my jersey uh, with my name on it. And I see my name tag on the top of a Mets clubhouse, you know, a locker. And I was just standing there looking at it. And Zach Wheeler walks by and he goes, hey, man, congratulations. You earned it. I'll see you in the big leagues. He doesn't remember it. But for me, it was one of the most amazing experiences of my entire life. And so um, playing professional baseball is such a fleeting thing. For me, it, it feels like a dream. It feels like a, a week. I felt like a Make-A-Wish kid for a little bit. I just feel like, I, I feel like it was just a gift. And uh, everything I do is just try to make sure that, you know, everyone knows how grateful, you know, how grateful we are is for the opportunity. But I just want people to maximize their opportunity while they have it. Mm-hmm. So they have the ability to uh, be thankful for, for that when they look back on it. And uh, there are regrets I have, and I want to make sure guys don't have the same regrets as me. For sure. Peter was a Make-A-Wish kid when he was 12. Were you? Yeah, and his wish was to catch the first pitch from Paul LaDuca. We have the same name. Yeah. And it, Jeremy, was, it's just very interesting how, <clears throat> how the universe works in strange ways. It's just that Paul LaDuca was in the Mets for 2006-2007 season. Peter got sick was diagnosed with cancer in December of 2016. Mm-hmm. So by 2017, when he recovered, you know, he was at the right place at the right time. And when, when they asked when the Make-A-Wish, said, like, what did you make a wish? And they thought, you know, do you want to, you know, they, they weren't really as tight with the Mets as they were with the Yankees. So when Peter said, like, I want to I wanna catch the first, because I'm a catcher, I want to catch the first pitch from Paul LaDuca. And they're like, are you sure you don't want to do something else with the Yankees? Like, no, I, that's what I want to do. And so Incredible. It, it's, it's an amazing, an amazing thing. That's wonderful. I'm happy you're healthy. Thank I hope you. you're doing well. This was awesome. Jeremy, thank you so much. You've been an amazing guest. We want to wish you continued success in everything that you do in your organizations with the upcoming Olympics uh, and the Israeli team. You're an amazing guy. You really are. What a pleasure to meet you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jeremy. Take care, buddy. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Bats Left Throws Right podcast. I've been your host, Jack Almer, along with Sal LaDuca and Peter LaDuca. We had a great time with you here today. Just as a reminder to please follow us on Twitter at BLTR Podcast and on Facebook and Instagram at Bats Left Throws Right. Tune in through Spotify, Google Podcasts, or Apple Podcasts. And please be sure after this interview to rate, subscribe, and review. Thank you again for tuning in.